It is uh, very sweet to be able to gather together. It is uh, tantalizingly close to be able to physically start gathering together. I do uh, ask for your ongoing prayers for us and the lead team in the session that we can do this in a timely and wise fashion. Uh, we, we do just so look forward to uh, sharing physical space. And, uh, but it's been a, a, its own spiritual challenge to recognize and rely on uh, the way we're connected by the Holy Spirit uh, during this season and that we really are and truly together with one another. And uh, hopefully part of what this season has encouraged is the strength and power of what it means to be spiritually unified in Christ and also uh, that great uh, truth that isn't it nice that we're not platonic and that we don't believe the spiritual is better than the physical, but we want a lovely uh, reuniting of both the spirit and the body uh, as we gather together. This morning we will start uh, a sermon series, as John mentioned, in Romans. Uh, and we're going to start, not surprisingly, if, if you know me at all, uh, the back and work forward. But that's only because in this particular book, uh, Paul's greeting, of course, is at the end of a letter, which is normal. But there's something in the names and the way he describes folks that tells us a lot about Paul's motivation and heart for writing this amazing book, this uh, theological treatise, this book of love and unity, this book that expresses many of his deepest beliefs about the power of God to create a new people in the midst of a world that is being recreated because of the resurrected Jesus. And I will use as part of my justification for doing this, the uh, work of Matthew in starting his gospel with a genealogy. And if you remember, we've talked about this over the years, that, Paul, uh, that what Matthew does in Matthew chapter 1 is describe in a lot of ways what Jesus's ministry is going to be like by the people that he lists, particularly some of the oddballs of the Old Testament and some of the great women of faith, many of them not Jewish by birth. And so we have these anticipations of what Jesus's ministry is going to be about because he remembers that Tamar and Rahab and Ruth are brought into the lineage of Jesus and that there's, there's hope of a new people, a new covenant people, even in the opening uh, verses and genealogy of Jesus. And so in that theme, we're going to start this morning back in Romans 16, and then next week we'll proceed to Romans chapter 1 in a more traditional walk through this wonderful and amazing uh, letter. Before we go any further, let's uh, put at least the first 16 verses of chapter 16 before us. Hear now God's word. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Censoria which interestingly enough is right near Corinth, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for me and for my life, to whom 
not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epiphanes, who was with uh, was the first convert in Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Una, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They're well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Epaphroditus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apellus, who was approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphanius and Tryphosa. Greet my beloved Persis, who worked, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asancritus, Philagon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermas, uh, and, and Herminus, and my brothers who are with them. Greet Philagus and Julia, Narcus and his sister, and Olympias, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to encourage us this Trinity Sunday on the fullness of who you are. We pray that in your work of new creation, started at the resurrection of our Savior and your Son, that we have now peace with you as this book will reinforce to us so powerfully. We pray, Lord, that we would again be moved to know what recreation means to you and what it means to be a new people, a new people created out of the tribes and the tongues of all nations. We pray that it would be done for your glory, and Lord, we pray even the preaching this morning would be useful in reflecting the truth of who you are and whatever is said this morning that is not true. May those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I probably made too much of how long it's been before I got around to preaching a uh, long sermon series in Romans, and, and part of that is uh, just uh, how important this book is to our uh, own traditions, uh, to the Western Church and our understanding of elements of the gospel. And it has been broken down in so many ways uh, by so many different scholars and so many different angles. Uh, it reminds me a little bit, uh, and uh, I'm going to watch uh, Richard's face. Uh, thankfully, it's hidden mostly by his beard. But we have this vehicle out at the farm called the Green Beast, and it's been taken apart in various ways over the years, and it's been apart for about 14 years. Now, this last time, I took another engine out. We may put another one in. We dropped the gas tank, 
And there is a way in the garage at the farm where parts of the green beast are laid out all over the floor. And they're all important parts. Uh, some of them are labeled. Some of them may or may not be labeled correctly. Uh, but they are all a part. And it is great fun to do that. And it's important uh, when we need to put it back together the right way. A certain way in which, though, at some point, if we don't put it back together, as fun as it is to plan the trips and to imagine what we can do, we won't get to enjoy this beautiful 1971 three-door Suburban. It has its own special patina and its own special uh, joy for our family. I'd like to say that in many ways, the Reformation uh, has done to Romans what we have sort of done to the green beast. That is to say that at the time, it needed to be taken apart. As the reformers were faced with a church that was far from firing on all cylinders, we needed to take apart some of the great truths of Scripture and understand again how they impacted the whole, both the church and our individual lives in Christ. It needed to be taken apart. The question is whether or not in the ensuing 500 years we've done very much to put the gospel back together. To some degree in the West, we had our Baptist brothers and sisters grab hold of evangelism in Matthew 28 and run off and share the good news of the gospel. The Pentecostals ran off with the Holy Spirit and the Presbyterians have been thinking deep thoughts in quiet rooms for quite some time. The question is, how do we now take all of those parts and in some way put them back together and recognize that there is a whole to the gospel and there is a whole to the book of Romans as much as it breaks down into amazing verses and amazing truths, it was meant to be seen as what? Well, I would contend that from what we see in Romans 16, particularly in verse 16, it is for Paul as it is in all of his writings, his deep hope that there would be unity in this new community of faith, this new covenant people, a unity created by the work of Christ, created by the unconditional love of God and the sacrifice that was completed by Christ on the cross, and shown to be true by his resurrection by the Father. The reality of the Spirit which indwells us and applies Christ to us. But the end, the point, is that just as we are greeted with a holy kiss by our Savior, that we might be people who greet one another with a holy kiss. And that, in the context and in the language of the day, is not just the handshake of its time, or perhaps the uh, familiar uh, greeting that may be common in Western Europe, but really and deeply in the first century as Paul is describing it, it is the deep familial relationship that allows a kiss that is more than just functional. It is a statement of our family love and connection and commitment to one another. And so I want us to look this morning first at what the point is, as we've already begun, and then we'll look at what the challenge is, and then we'll look at what the direction will be. So first, 
What's the point? The point is, verse 16, to greet each other with a holy kiss, to unify the family of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, where we will spend some wonderful time, it is clear that in the midst of some of the most powerful teaching about what salvation looks like as a process, it is also the chapter in which the Holy Spirit is referenced the most. 24 times in one chapter, the Holy Spirit is referenced because the weight and the glory and the power of what Romans 8 is about is only going to be expressed in our lives by a power other than ourselves. The point is that unity in the Spirit, not along those lines that humans create, which is affinity or preferences or economics or race or gender or fill in the blank, but the people of God, if they're going to be a people who bring the peace of God, the people who can bring this list of names, which is a combination of Jewish people, women and men, single, widows perhaps, married couples, the first convert in Asia going back to Rome. So he's not Italian. He comes from a different place. He's moving into the city and he's a leader in the church, Paul says. There's five house churches listed in this setting. There may have been more, but there's at least five gatherings listed in Romans 16. These small churches gathered together, all led by different folks, but seen by Paul as a unified group, even though they don't have a large one place to meet. The point is unity by the Holy Spirit in the goal of the covenant people of God, ordained by God the Father. So the point of Romans is not a deep theological treatise, not uh, simply uh, an unbelievably dense presentation of deep philosophical thoughts, which both encourage our faith, challenge the philosophy of Paul's day, both inside the Jewish community and outside in the Greek and Roman philosophical uh, schools. It is an almost endless delight of weighty matters to unpack. You can simply look at one piece of Romans your entire life and write several PhDs. It is as fun as walking into the garage and seeing all of the parts and all of the little details that are different. It doesn't matter whether you love to look at the pieces of a painting and each detail that the artist brings, or whether you love a particular piece of music and the way it utilizes one instrument in the orchestra, in the end, its greatest joy is to be brought back together of all of its pieces that we can behold the whole vision of the original painter, author, or even engineer. That the unity of the whole might be what we delight in. So I think that's the point of Romans, to encourage us to be a community that greets one another 
with the wonderful familial covenant love of a family that greets each other with a kiss that sets us apart. Again, remember a holy kiss. Holy means set apart. And that all the churches of Christ gathered together, greet one another spiritually as we do, encouraging that we are one body. Well, what's the challenge? That seems rather noble, easy to address. Well, the challenge is for most of us uh, in the 21st century that Paul is not a seminary, Western, educated, middle-class, Protestant theologian. It's just, unfortunately, not true. Uh, It's why we wrestle with some of the truths that Paul presents, because they strike us culturally as rather difficult to inculcate and sometimes still challenge our own cultures. I read this morning the ESV's translation And some of it, again, my meaning here, this is going to be a little hard. My meaning here is not to undermine your belief that most of English translations are reliable. I am going to suggest that sometimes our own value system makes it hard for us to read the Bible the way the Bible was written. And translation is always a challenge. And so we start with the first person that Paul mentions, Phoebe, and awkwardly for reasons that are quite inexplicable other than cultural motivations, the word deacon is translated servant. And it probably reads that Phoebe was the deacon of the church in Censorea. The challenge is that there's no reason not to translate deacon. It's the Hebrew. I mean, sorry, Hebrew. That's a whole nother issue. The Greek. It sometimes challenges our understanding of how women interact in the church because of certain cultural and historical values we still struggle with today. Does translating her as a deacon mean that necessarily what the PCA does in ordination is wrong? No. We have a doctrine of ordination that also needs to be unpacked. But better to wrestle with the way Scripture was written than to perhaps soften the blow and have it read a little bit more in line with what we believe. There is uh, a great deal of uh, leadership of both genders of single and married people. That's always been a challenge for us, whether we're reacting against the mandatory uh, singleness of the Catholic priesthood, whether we're struggling with who uh, should and can speak into the midst of a meeting. Just know that this is deeper than we really understand. It sneaks up on us. I was a part of a missions committee early on uh, when Artis and I were married, and a wonderful missionary woman came back from Africa, and she was uh, showing slides. We were still watching slides. I can remember the click, click, click as it rotated, 
and it was beautiful. She was showing how uh, she had been as a single woman on this missionary station, and she was helping bring the gospel and, and teaching the good news of Jesus to people in rural African villages. And the awkward thing was, of course, that as she taught scripture in these Sunday schools, uh, there were both African men and African women sitting and learning under her instruction, something that would not have been allowed in the church that she was making her missions report to. Women weren't allowed to teach mixed gender Sunday schools in our churches. Now, why didn't we raise the issue that it seemed odd? Well, because the second issue is that we do wrestle with race and that quietly and subtly Aryan views that perhaps African-Americans or Africans, black Africans, aren't quite the same as white people, it was just visually less shocking to see her teaching black men than it would have been perhaps to teach white men. Don't underestimate how long the things we have steeped ourselves in causes us to view one thing one way and our circumstance another. Paul is going to regularly affirm, as he does in his greetings, that there are Jewish and Greek and Roman leaders in the church, that the divisions of race, that the divisions of power. He has people in this uh, list from Narcissa's house, a favorite of the uh, Emperor Claudius who had just died, listed in many secular documents as a powerful person in Rome. You have everybody from that household down to what we know to be people uh, of the common and even the slave class in Rome. There is no racial or socioeconomic status differences. And it is in the midst of that, too, that the terminologies of things like apostle, we have one last difficult translational issue to notice. And this is why it's so hard for us to read Paul the way Paul wrote himself. For about the first 400 years, if you look at uh, verse 7, uh, greet Anachronis and Una, my kinsman. Well, for the first 300 years, 400 years, it was known that Una was a woman. And about 500 years ago, I mean, 1500 years ago, it started to be popular to translate that sort of the way you'd say, oh, somebody confused Michelle and Michael. And all of a sudden, the grammar and the translations in the Latin began to be masculine. And for about 1,500 years, the church universally translated her name as a masculine name because it was just less problematic. About 60 years ago, there was enough Greek evidence and older texts began to be found that were older than uh, the Latin Vulgates that had helped uh, some of our early uh, translations into English. And it just became untenable to continue to translate the name in the masculine. But you'll notice that one vestige of our difficulty with Paul actually says is still struggling in the translation of the ESV. It says they were well known to the apostles, and that's just not what the Greek says. It says they are well known among the apostles. That means that the original reason Luna's name was changed was that the grammar was indicating that Luna is an apostle. 
Now, what does that mean? It means that she saw the risen Christ. It may mean that they were present in the upper room and witnessed the resurrected Christ. They were probably at Pentecost. Paul says that they were there before. Does it necessarily speak to male headship or all of the other cultural issues that we find that we want to maintain biblical truths on? Absolutely not, but it doesn't help if we feel the need to somehow soften Paul's words because it might create complications for us. You see, when we begin to dream about what it'd be like to put the green beast back together, we have dream of what it'd like to put the gospel back together, and we can imagine what that vehicle might be like and where it might take us. And some of us might want it to be a sports car, and some of us might want it to be a safe vehicle to get us to and from something. And some of us want us to be this amazing adventure vehicle. The gospel, some of us want to be safe and reaffirming of our cultural values and our heritage and what we believe to be the best of our longings to live out as a culture. Some of us want it to push the edges of culture and break down every barrier it could possibly break with breakneck speed and drama and excitement. And some of us want it to be a steady adventure of seeing just the beauty and the glory of God. None of those desires are inherently wrong. The gospel is capable of taking us both on changes of breakneck speed, of being a safe place to be comforted and reassured in the transcendence of a loving God. And it will always, in its own way, take us on adventures in seeing the beauty and the holiness and the transformative reality of who God is. My encouragement is that as we go through the book of Romans, looking at who and what God wants us to be, that we recognize that in the end, what is being built is not ours, but it is God's vehicle to take us, his people, into the reality of what it means to be created in his image, to be a new covenant people that bring recreation, that bring restoration, that will both see our wonderful heritage and legacy from the Reformation affirmed, but also challenged as we put those pieces they so wonderfully designated for us back together into the stream of the gospel, that once it's put back together, it will take us someplace. It will take us to a place which is both affirming and comforting, challenging and transformative. The word is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is a means of conveying the great breadth and depth of the truth of who God is. Let us not be afraid of what it says, even if it challenges things we hold dear. But let us believe that when we gather together in unity, wrestling with the truth of God and our own limitations, that we can greet one another, knowing that in our own way, we each wrestle with Scripture just a little bit differently, challenged and affirmed 
in different ways. And it's in that diversity as Jew and Greek and slave and free and Gentile, male and female, that the body of Christ is made up, that it might be healthy and broad and rich in its dependence and reflection upon the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, we desire to sit at your feet. We pray that we might read and see your word, Lord, in a way that allows us to rest in who you are, not in who we think we are. Lord, we pray that you would be the one who puts us back together in a way that is pleasing and, Lord, so much more marvelous than we could possibly imagine. We trust you for these things and that you would work us by the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.